The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. On April 4th, 1968, pastor, civil rights activist, author, orator, Nobel Peace Prize winner Martin Luther King Jr. was shot down as he stood on a Memphis hotel balcony. He was in Memphis to support a sanitation worker strike, and he was on his way to dinner when a bullet struck him in the face from above, fracturing Dr. King's jaw, exiting his face, re-entering his body through the neck, then severing numerous vital arteries and fracturing his spine in several places, causing severe damage to his spinal column and coming to rest on the left side of his back. He would die from these fatal injuries within the hour at St. Joseph's Hospital. The day before, he'd given his final sermon, saying at one point to the primarily African-American audience before him, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. Well, King would not make it to his promised land of racial equality in the United States, but he did move the racial equality needle a hell of a lot closer to even than it was when he was born in Georgia nearly four decades earlier. We examine his life, his death, his legacy, and the most inspiring time suck I've had the pleasure to examine yet. Let's explore Dr. King's beautiful dream, a dream dreamt amid the ugly racial conditions of much of his life. In this power to the people, don't let the man hold you down. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Rage Against the Machine edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, everybody. I'm Dan Cummins. Thanks for listening to The Suck. I um, do this one at night, recording this one late. I uh, usually record these in the morning and uh, usually uh, caffeinated uh, under the influence of a little uh, uh, ginger ginger ale and moonshine, uh, keeping it classy. 
No joke there. Got a, got some moonshine, some locally distilled moonshine from a local liquor, liquor store and uh, giving it a shot. Uh, thanks to all you mother suckers out there for all the iTunes reviews, subscriptions, recommendations for others to listen and for getting back to me about what I was talking about regarding a future Time Suck app last week. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks to all of you who have offered research assistance as well. Uh, a lot of people excited to work with Bojangles in the research department. Makes me very happy. And if I haven't gotten back to you, it's uh, it's not because I don't want to. Uh, I will as soon as time allows. Uh, having a hell of a time staying on top of those emails. I love that they're coming in. Love that they're pouring in. But I got to stay focused on the suck. The suck waits for no one. Every Monday and the occasional Friday, the suck cometh. So saith Nimrod, God of time suck. And if Nimrod is not pleased with the suck, innocent cocker spaniels will pay the ultimate price. Nimrod demands his blood sacrifice. And if you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about right now, you're probably a relatively new listener, and I'm going to be moving on soon, so don't even worry about it. Hail Nimrod! Thanks to those of you who have been clicking on that Amazon button at timesuckpodcast.com to support uh, support the show uh, while you do your Amazon shopping. And of course, thanks to the time suckers who bought some uh, exotic and even mythological animal skin t-shirts this past week. You can see some pics at, at Dan Cummins Comedy on Instagram, and the pics will now be posted going forward at, at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram. Uh, we've been running low on the muskrat labia in the store, uh, both imported and domestic, and I apologize. I know the first-generation Time Suck tea was originally made out of 600% muskrat labia, and look, uh, there's just not enough muskrat labia on the market right now to keep that percentage going. We're, we're out of most sizes, uh, but just got a new shipment in that will, will be available sometime this week. But the new shipment is going to be 250% muskrat labia. Uh, so sorry about that. Apparently, a lot of muskrats have been born with unusually small labias recently, which uh, fucks up the whole harvesting procedure. It's almost as if they've been evolving to not have their labias harvested. So frustrating. So we'll get back to relying on 300% chinchilla labia, all imported uh, for now. Uh, for as long as those wonderful creatures continue to have giants, uh, soft, so soft labias. Uh, replenishing the second generation flat earth tees as well. Uh, more of those will be in, in the shop soon. More of that uh, unicorn scrotum to produce. Uh, plenty of that, by the way. Plenty. The market is flooded with unicorn scrotum right now. Couldn't be happier. Uh, if you live near the shipping center, uh, they've been tossing subpar uni scrotes uh, out back by the dumpster. Uh, I saw a kid wearing one as a hat the other day. And uh, smiling from ear to ear. He looked very happy. Also appreciate all of you who picked up the 213% imported koala anus uh, treated with gerbil saliva for a little extra softness. Third generation teas uh, have a true surplus of anuses right now. Uh, sometimes it's hard to walk around my office just because of the giant piles of koala anuses I got stacked around the recording room. All that at the shop, uh, timesuckpodcast.com. And getting that Time Suck social media back up and running after uh, I dropped the ball on the fantastic Time Suck volunteer, Jordan Kasuzic, a few weeks ago. Congratulations to him on his most uh, on his recent most likely to succeed high school graduation. That's right, he graduated most likely to succeed in his class. And congrats to uh, Time Sucker Sid Shives, fresh out of the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, FITM, uh, same university my wife went to, just a different campus, uh, and she recently graduated. And she's helping out big time with the social media as well. It's at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, slash Time Suck Podcast on Facebook. And uh, due to the 4th of July and the fact that I will be on a big camping trip with my family in Montana, Vlad the Impaler uh, will not be this Friday. I am sorry. I am. I know we are now at over 700 iTunes reviews. You've earned it. Uh, thank you so much for those. But uh, the episode will drop the following Friday, Friday, July 14th, noon uh, Pacific Daylight Time. And I have been prepping that one uh, here and there for weeks. Holy fuck. Vlad the Impaler uh, Dracula makes Jeffrey Dahmer look like someone you'd want to babysit your kids. Makes Jeffrey Dahmer look like someone you want to send your college-age son to the bar with to have some drinks with no witnesses. Like someone you'd like to be tortured and killed by. Vlad butchered so many 
people in the most diabolical ways. Made a name for himself as a sadistic monster in an age when rulers tortured people on the reg. Uh, He managed to stand out when peasant life came real cheap. Uh, Lived during a fascinating period of Eastern uh, European medieval history as well. Uh, Christians fighting the the Muslims, the Ottoman Turks against, you know, know, the, the Vatican. Very interesting stuff. Uh, and really not fun to be an Eastern European villager in the 15th century. Uh, the worst, actually. A lot of history, a lot of blood, and what will be the darkest time suck yet. And you get to hear a little bit about the Dracula origin story. So who doesn't like learning about the Count? And finally, a brief thank you to uh, Michael uh, Wojcho, El, uh, Eli Del Rio, and anyone else I may have missed for suggesting today's suck. And yes, Michael, I probably fucked up your name because you have one of those Slavic Polish bad boys with a ridiculous consonant to vowel ratio. Uh, I'm sure you're used to it being butchered. And now, let's find out uh, what else I may or may not have fucked up recently with some Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Uh, many of you uh, let me know. I accidentally <laughs> closed the Time Sucker Updates segment last week by repeating the Time Sucker Updates intro. Uh, all I can say on that is my bad. My bad. Simple human error on that one. You know, last week I actually had Grammy Award winning Michael motherfucking McDonald, Triple M, doing the episode editing work, and he yamo fucked up. Oh, 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 yamo fucked up whenever I edit. So thanks for letting me know. Thanks for giving me a good excuse to McDonald, you sons of bitches. Speaking of Triple M, did you know that Christopher Cross won a Grammy for his self-titled debut album in 1991, beating out Pink Floyd's The Wall, an album that has been certified five times platinum, and that the album's sales were driven largely by the success of my favorite yacht rock single of all time, Ride Like the Wind, a track featuring the backing vocals of one Michael motherfucking McDonald. You may not think you know that song, but you've heard that song. And I've got such a long way to go, such a long way to go, make it to the border of Mexico. So I'll ride like the wind, ride like the wind, bana, bana, da, bana, bana. So there's an update for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get a chance, by the way, uh, no joke, you will laugh so hard if you watch Christopher Cross's music video for that, for that, uh, for that single. It's so ridiculous. It's, he's like that whole video killed the radio star. He's like the prime example of that. MTV was just coming into power and they wanted people who were more uh, visually appealing, which is, you know, fucked up. You know, the world's not fair. And the guy's visual so did not match his voice. Voice of a yacht rock angel. I'm talking about Christopher Cross right now. Looked like a dude just slamming back beers uh, with his buddies, uh, you know, at like a Houston Oilers game. Fucking like in the parking lot. Like you just big, beefy Texas dude. <laughs> With, I think he was actually wearing an Oilers jersey in the video. He was wearing a jersey, I know, in the video. And just, like, jeans. He looked like he just showed up, like, he just finished his um, shift uh, at the fucking, you know, stacking freight. And he just came over to, like, knock out a music video. And he didn't even bother showering in between stacking freight and doing the video. It's, it's so fucking surreal. Uh, voice of an angel, though. Okay, but here, talk, time to talk about a different uh, Eminem. I was talking about Michael McDonald earlier. Uh, this is an update from Sarah Lilly, Time Suck intern, member of the Bojangles research team. Uh, she wrote and saying, hey, Dan, currently listening to the Texas Rangers episode. Thanks for the shout-out, by the way. One little correction. The Hershey Company makes all kinds of delicious treats from the Hershey's Kisses to Jolly Ranchers, but they do not make M&Ms. That is the Mars Company, the same company that makes Snickers. 
Now, this is uh, she's referring to me uh, saying that if the Hershey founder, uh, Milton Hershey, would have boarded the Titanic, a ship he did have a ticket for, that we wouldn't have tasty M&Ms today. And, and adding to the same correction is time sucker Miguel Martinez. He says, Dear Cummins, Texas suck wizard. Man, do I love your continuous suckage of all things I'm curious about and some things I never even knew I was curious about. I love the way you suck these topics raw and keep us thirsting for more hot suck every week. Just FYI, M&Ms are a product of the M&M slash Mars company, which is actually a competitor of Hershey. I decided to do my own mini suck. I like it. Found that there was a remote tie to the Hershey company where one of the founders of the M&M company, which stands for Mars and Murray, by the way, Bruce Murray, uh, was son of Hershey executive William Murray. And I guess you could argue that if there was never a Hershey company, then Mars founder Forrest Mars may have named the candy something else. But it sounds like he was still hell-bent on producing the melt-proof chocolate after seeing soldiers eating something similar during the Spanish Civil War. I also have it on good authority that Mr. Mars was a member of the Lizard Illuminati. So I'm sure those damn space lizards would have found some other way to produce the highly addictive candies used for mind control that we all know and love today. I love the references, Miguel. God damn it. Other time suckers also caught this mistake. Or was it a mistake? As Miguel left the door a little open, was it a mistake at all? Why did I think M&Ms were made by the Hershey guy? Well, because Bruce Murray and Forrest Mars uh, use Hershey's chocolate to make M&Ms, like Miguel said. So, if Milton Hershey dies in the Titanic in 1912, does the Hershey company survive without him? Does three-year-old Bruce Murray still grow up to work in the chocolate business? Does he still meet Forrest Mars to make M&Ms? Does Forrest Mars strike a deal with another chocolatier to make his candy during the chocolate and sugar shortage of World War II? When chocolate was hard to come by, do I still eat tasty peanut M&Ms late at night in my hotel room after shows when I've told myself earlier I need to cut back all the late night sugar because I'm starting to hate the way I look? I doubt it. I may still be right. Hail Nimrod. Thank you, Bojangles, for your sweet, accurate suck. Also, uh, this time I definitely fucked up. This is the San Jacinto fucked up. Casey Locke pointed out that I pronounced uh, San Jacinto as San Jacinto. And I'll tell you, here's why. When you Google San Jacinto pronunciation, the first two videos that come up from pronouncenames.com offer the Spanish pronunciation of Jacinto. Then there's a third video from dictionaryvoice.com for the San Jacinto River. It's in a British accent that does pronounce it as San Jacinto, not San Jacinto. A fourth pronunciation video uh, from dictionary.com also says it correctly. This illustrates the trouble with name and place pronunciation. I just want to make everybody aware of. I went to school at Gonzaga. Uh, Some of my classmates and other people living in Spokane, Washington, uh, used to get so mad when announcers pronounced it as Gonzaga. Those same people also became furious when Spokane was pronounced as Spokane, even though that's exactly how it's spelled. Why do people mess things up like that all the time? Because local pronunciations are tricky and rarely straightforward. Uh, so, so thanks for keeping me, uh, you know, informed, keep letting me know about this stuff. I really do like to know the right answer, but if you really want to help me out, let me know if there is some magical, highly accurate pronunciation guide to people's names and to geographical places that I cannot find. Uh, and I'm serious about that. If there's, uh, something I, I just don't know about, let me know. And in the meantime, uh, I'm going to try and figure out which pronunciation website I found is the most reliable and I'll let you know. How about that shit? Okay. And now for a little necessary evolving on my part. Uh, I like getting a little. Uh, I like getting a little slap on the hand sometimes. I really do. This is from Jessica Sharp. Uh, she says a compliment and some constructive criticism. Take your pick. Uh, hey Dan, I'm a huge fan. I've been following you for a while, not in a creepy way, and I've listened to all your albums and podcasts. I love your crazy, angry brand of comedy that comes from my home state. Now for the constructive criticism. I would really appreciate it if you didn't use the word pussy to describe someone as weak or unworthy. I'm not trying to PC police you or anything. I just think it's a dick way to describe someone. There are plenty of other words you could use that would get the same point across without equating female genitalia with weakness. Just imagine the day your daughter listens to your podcast and hears you describe someone that way. 
Anyway, love your podcast. And I really appreciate the way you take other people's corrections slash comments into consideration. Keep on sucking. Well, Jessica, totally agree. Totally agree. Honestly, I didn't even realize I did that an episode. Don't even know which one I did it in, but I don't doubt I did it because I've done it many times in my life, many, many times, and it's, it, is a, it is a dick move. And uh, using a woman's genitals to denote weakness is pretty fucked up if you really think about it. And it's lazy. You know, there's been many better words to pick from. I, I guess, you know, I can just blame it on uh, being where I was raised and just being a, a dude. I mean, not that that's an excuse, but it just became kind of normalized to say that. Everybody just kind of said it growing up. And uh, now that I really think about it, you are absolutely correct. And uh, we could call somebody something else, you know, for acting cowardly or unnecessarily weak. I, I suggest baby. Don't be a fucking baby. And if you're like, well, that's not cool, assigning weakness to an age, well, you're a fucking moron. Because babies all are comparatively very, very weak. They're very weak. Like, I'm not the toughest guy around, but I could easily, even on a day when I have like a stomach flu or low blood sugar or a tight back, I could fuck up a baby. Any baby. I'll say that right now. If any babies are listed, fucking fight me. See how it works out for you. I could fuck up 20 babies trying to fight me at the same time. Why? Because they are very weak. They're weak little crybabies. So let's not associate weakness with gender anymore. Let's associate it with sniveling little, literally shit-stained, slobbering, wimpy babies. Little wimp babies who can't even do a push-up or even say push-up because they're fucking dumb in addition to being weak. All right. Thank you, Jessica. Not sure if that's the intended replacement you were looking for, but I feel better saying baby. And finally, one last quick update. This is my own. This is uh, Alexander Backman. You may remember him from the Nostradamus episode, the Idiots of the Internet segment. I uh, just want everybody to know he is still selling alexanderbackman.com for $5,000 US and still only interested in selling to someone also named Alexander Backman. Also, here's the update. I failed to point out in the episode uh, earlier that just because you may have $5,000 US and you may also be named Alexander Backman, you might not be able to buy it, okay? Because Alexander is interested only in men with this name. That's what it says on his website. You have to be a man as well. So if you're a lady, Alexander, get the fuck out of here. No dice for you. You will not be able to buy that complete and utter lunatics website that's worthless. Okay. Thanks for sending in the updates, everyone. I appreciate it. Sorry, there are always so many I don't get to. Uh, now let's get into the most inspiring time suck I've dived into thus far. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. So Dr. King, one of the most recognizable names in U.S. history, right up there with George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Alexander Backman. But seriously, what a life this man led. And we'll use the bulk of this time suck to examine that life in great detail. It was one of the longest marches down a time suck timeline yet. Before we jump in, quick note on the research for this episode. Uh, for the primary source, I listened to the autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. on Audible, an audiobook that won the Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word Album in 1999. It's fantastic. It's narrated by LeVar Burton, who hosted Reading Rainbow and was Lieutenant Commander Geordi LaForge in Star Trek The Next Generation. But here's the thing. MLK never actually wrote an autobiography, so it's a bit of a misnomer. Uh, he did publish three major books as well as numerous articles and essays focusing on specific periods of his life. Letters, speeches, other materials also serve as a basis for the autobiography King may have written about his life. What's missing, however, are the private details about his relationship with his parents, kids, wife. You know, we're, we don't get to know much about his private life in the same kind of uh, amount of detail because he wasn't able to actually write an uh, autobiography uh, before he was killed. So, and he was, for the most part, pretty guarded about his private family life. But, uh, but again, it's 10 hours long, and it is fantastic if you would like to listen more after listening to this podcast. So uh, mostly, we're going to focus on his public life. And now let's get into that with the Time Suck timeline I referred to. 
Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Let's start in 1929. Martin Luther King Jr. was born in Atlanta, Georgia, on January 15, 1929. Crazy to me, he's only three years older than my own grandpa, who's still alive and well, still gardens and splits his own firewood, still cuts down pine trees with a chainsaw. He's a man's man, Papa Ward, Papa Ward Hall. Well, Martin Luther King was born on Auburn Avenue in a low-to-middle-class neighborhood. Uh, no one was extremely poor in this neighborhood. No one was wealthy. Crime was at a minimum. It was a deeply religious neighborhood. He was born to a happy family. His parents had a solid marriage, and King didn't recall them ever really you know, fighting. His father was Martin Luther King Sr., born in 1899. He would live until 1984. He was a pastor himself, and his mother was Alberta Williams King. She was born in 1904 and lived to 1974. She's a former school teacher. He had a sister two years older than himself, Christine, and he had one younger brother, Alfred Daniel Williams King, born a year after Martin. Now, Alfred, as you probably know, would grow to become an accomplished salsa dancer, spending his adulthood in the various nightclubs of Guatemala and making a comfortable living, sewing sequins onto tight jackets and tighter pants. No, no, he would also grow up to be a pastor. How fun would it be if that other thing was true, though? No, MLK's mom was a devoutly religious, soft-spoken, easygoing woman, uh, an only child who was raised in comfort, sent to the best available schools and college, and for an African-American woman of the early 20th century, protected from the worst aspects of racial discrimination about as best as you could have been. She did well in school, although she wasn't as affected by segregation as many African-Americans of her time were. Uh, she was obviously very aware of it, and she taught her children, including Martin Luther King, from an early age, that segregation was wrong, was morally wrong, and that they should never see themselves as anything less than equal to anyone else. Now, Martin Luther King Sr. was a soft-spoken man, but he was physically imposing, with an athletic build weighing around 220 pounds. MLK would later say that he would never meet a person more courageous and fearless than his father. His father was heavily involved in civil rights. He was a president for a time of the local chapter of the NAACP in Atlanta. After witnessing a brutal attack on African-American passengers, he refused to ride the segregated city buses. He fought for the elimination of Jim Crow elevators and courthouses and for raising the wages of African-American teachers, equalizing them with their white counterparts. So fighting for social justice ran in the King family, instilled into MLK Jr. from birth. Now, MLK Sr. was pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church and wielded great influence in the African-American community of Atlanta. And despite his social activism, he was never physically attacked for standing up for what he believed in, which was rare, sadly, for that time. MLK Jr. was uh, in church basically every day growing up. And, uh, and he said that, you know, he never resented this, but rather enjoyed it. He, he never questioned going to church until a phase of skepticism hit him during his second year of college, you know, many years later. 1935, MLK entered grade school, and uh, as does a white playmate, playmate he'd had since the age of three. And once they began school, their friendship was forced apart. First, because they couldn't go to the same school because of segregation. And then the child's father demanded that his son no longer play with Martin because Martin was black. Now, this shocked Martin, and he never forgot about it. For the first time, MLK became conscious of the race problem in the U.S. He later recalled that this incident fueled him to hate all white people for quite some time. I get it, man. Now, that playmate's name, uh, you probably heard it, Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, who would make up for his father's racism by including Sammy Davis Jr. many years later into the Rat Pack. No, we don't know who that kid was. Uh, MLK also recalled encountering another incident with segregation a short time later when a clerk refused to sell his father a pair of shoes unless he waited in the back of the store. MLK Sr. said if he wouldn't be sold shoes in the front of the store, he wouldn't buy them at all, and took MLK Jr. and marched out of the store. This and other similar childhood experiences taught MLK Jr. not to just accept segregation, but instead to stand up to it. Another experience he witnessed was his father refusing to be addressed as boy by a policeman. Told a policeman that if he insisted on calling him boy, he wouldn't respond because he wasn't a boy. He was a man. 
And apparently, the cop didn't know how to handle this and just quietly wrote MLK Sr. a ticket and then let him go about his day. 1941. 1941 was when, according to MLK, another event happened that had a profound effect on his development. His grandma would die that year. Young Martin was very close to his maternal grandma, uh, Jenny Celeste Parks Williams. Born in Atlanta in April 1873, one of 13 children. 13! Man, life before uh, birth control. Reliable birth control. Must have just sucked. I cannot imagine having 13 kids. I mean, raising two is hard enough. I feel like if you had 13 kids, you're bound not to like at least one of them, right? I have 12 bright, beautiful children. And then I also have Luther. He is the bane of my existence. Quick to fight, slow to learn. He smells like spoiled cabbage. And when his beady eyes gaze upon you, the hair on the back of your neck will rise. Yes, sir. The devil's in that boy. If you get real quiet... You can usually hear him jerking off somewhere around the house. Anyway, anyway, Jenny is the daughter of a carpenter, wife of a pastor of Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, same church MLK Sr. would take over when her husband died, and the same church her grandson, MLK Jr., uh, would later co-pastor in 1960, eight years before his assassination. Uh, Jenny moved into MLK's home when her husband died in 1931, doted on her grandkids, especially Martin. MLK considered her a saint desire for his grandma to somehow still be alive somewhere in some form is what hardened his belief in Christian immortality. When Jenny died of a heart attack on May 18, 1941, Martin Luther King Jr. was attending a parade without his parents' permission. Grief-stricken by the death of his beloved mama, and ashamed of his transgression, King Jr. reacted by jumping from the second floor window of his house. He was uninjured, but according to his father, he cried off and on for several days and was unable to sleep at night. MLK would later write of a few other memorable experiences in his youth uh, that helped shape his future. Uh, one was uh, when he was standing on a bus uh, uh, after, after winning a, a speech-giving contest sponsored by the African-American branch of the Elks in Dublin, Georgia. He was traveling back to Atlanta with a teacher on the bus. And the bus picked up some white passengers, and then the driver demanded that MLK and his teacher give up their seats. When they didn't give him up fast enough for his liking, he cursed them, calling them black sons of bitches. MLK and his teacher then stood up for the remaining 90 miles to Atlanta. He would later say that night never left his memory. said it was the angriest he had ever been in his whole life. What a bunch of fucking bullshit, man. He just won the speech. He gets sub- subjected to that shit. Segregation was powerful in Atlanta during uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s childhood. He couldn't swim in public pools. Later, there was a YMCA for African Americans. Couldn't go to white schools. Couldn't enter many of the stores downtown. Couldn't even go to the lunch counter to buy a burger or a cup of coffee. There were segregated movie theaters, and the African American theaters didn't get any of the first-run movies. They, they, they came two or three years later. Think about how that must have felt. Imagine your kid... And, and, and uh, you know, you have a kid and a new kick-ass arcade opens in town and all your friends are going and then, and then all your friends are talking about how great it is, but you don't get to set foot in the place because you were born to African-American parents. Imagine how that would feel. Oh, unbelievable. Uh, MLK also, uh, you know, uh, encountered the KKK growing up. He walked pl- past places where they had lynched black men. He would see them around town. He'd witness them assault black men. All of this was part of his childhood. 1944. MLK begins attending Morehouse College at the age of 15. His father and his maternal grandfather had also attended. MLK loved Morehouse. He began to have his first open adult discussions about racial injustices there. The professors there weren't beholden to state funding and could speak freely. You know, I, I imagine he had some in the family, but I guess this is when he had his first, you know, uh, conversations outside of the outside of the nuclear family. Uh, he read Henry David Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience, and King found it inspiring. Thoreau uh, was discussed with the Mexican-American War of 1846 that led to Texas becoming a state. Uh, it's a war we touched on last week in the uh, Texas Ranger episode. Uh, Mexico had abolished slavery, 
and a U.S. victory would legalize slavery in Texas, you know, which it did, and Thoreau didn't want his money aiding the expansion of slavery, so he chose to go to jail rather than pay his taxes. King was so moved by this, you know, that he read this tale several times. He became convinced that non-cooperation with evil was as big a moral obligation as cooperation with good. The fact that Thoreau was uh, white also softened King's anger at white people in general, uh, realizing that racial hatred wasn't a, a trait shared by all white people. Studying science in college also tested MLK's faith. He, he couldn't reconcile what he was learning in school with what he was taught in the church growing up. He wondered if it was possible for religion to be intellectually respectable as well as emotionally uplifting. And then Dr. Mays, president of Morehouse, and Dr. George Kelsey, professor of philosophy and religion, both ministers, uh, were the first highly educated men Dr. King had encountered who were also Christian ministers. And they did teach him to reconcile modern reason with ancient religion. They inspired him to incorporate modern thinking into his own ministry, which was not common uh, at the time in the South down there. Now, in 1948, King attended Crozer Theological Seminary in Chester, Pennsylvania. Didn't just study the Bible at Crozer. He studied Plato, Aristotle, Hobbes, Mill, John Locke. He looked for theological solution to social injustice. He especially studied the works of Walter Rauschenbusch, an American theologian who died in 1918 at the age of 56. Rauschenbusch's view of Christianity was that its purpose was to spread the kingdom of God, not through a fire and brimstone style of preaching, but uh, by being Christ-like, you know, uh, in, in this life, you know, le leading a Christ-like life. Rauschenbusch didn't, uh, did not understand Jesus' death as an act of substitutionary atonement. Rather, he came to believe that Jesus died to substitute love for selfishness as the basis of human society. So he was all about the here and now. Rauschenbusch wrote that Christianity in its true uh, nature is revolutionary, and he tried to remind society of that. He taught that the kingdom of God is not a matter of getting individuals to heaven, but of transforming the life on earth into the harmony of heaven. His sermons were focused on social responsibility, the here and now again, not focusing on the next life. Ah, man, love that. Big fan of that, big fan of that. Never been a fan, never will be a fan of people who just shit on this life and just can't wait to fucking, you know, get on to whatever heaven they think they're going to. It's like, well, just fucking get rid of yourself then. Spade it up. I don't need to listen to you bitch for the next 40 years. Uh, 1951, uh, King moved to Boston, studied ethics and philosophy. He became Dr. King by earning a PhD in uh, systemic theology, excuse me, systematic theology at only 26 years of age in 1955. Uh, at Boston U, he was introduced to the philosophy of Gandhi, the man who peacefully processed British rule of India in the early 20th century. So effectively, he helped lead India to independence in 1947 before being assassinated in 1948. Gandhi uh, was also... Uh, uh, Influenced, uh, he also influenced King into a, a philosophy of nonviolent resistance. You know, who wants a Gandhi time suck, by the way? Can't believe that dude's not on the topic list yet. Uh, King would later reflect that uh, he came to an intellectual understanding of the power of nonviolent protest to enact social change here in Boston, uh, but hadn't yet become motivated to become an instrument of that type of change. MLK also met his future wife in Boston, Coretta Scott, who was a student at the New England Conservatory of Music, studying singing on a scholarship after already having studied teaching at Antioch College in Ohio, uh, the school her older sister was the first African-American to ever attend. A mutual friend introduced the pair. Uh, they met for lunch, and on that first date, they talked about racial and social injustice. Coretta was just beginning to become involved in the social justice movement, and MLK later reflected he decided he wanted to marry her within an hour of meeting her. I can, I can just hear the collective awe of 80% of the women listening right now. And she'd soon know uh, she'd marry that handsome, clean-shaven pastor as well. A man who would have had an even smoother shave if today's Time Suck sponsor had been around. Time Suck is brought to us today by Dollar Shave Club. 
the smarter choice in razors. When you switch to Dollar Shave Club by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash timesuck, you get your first month of the executive razor with a tube of their Dr. Carver Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. No hidden fees, no commitments. Cancel anytime you like. Think about how MLK's sweet stash, his sweet man stash, would have looked if the edges had been just a little bit crisper. Trimmed by a Dollar Shave Club razor. Would have popped off his lip just that much harder. I know my beard game has been a little tighter since I switched. Mm-hmm. And my wife's legs smoother than ever. Since she started using it, uh, the, you know, the razor without asking me if I even thought it was okay. Her and I both love the solid executive handle, and we both really love Dr. Carver's shave butter. You look at pics of MLK, you'll notice the dude consistently looks sharp. Seriously. Try and find one pic of a disheveled Dr. King. You can't. Well, you want to look uh, at the top of your game consistently? Or do you want to look like a feral hobo fresh from getting tossed from a rickety Appalachian train? Well, if you want to look smooth and sharp, and if you want a smooth, sharp, affordable shave delivered right to your door every month, go to dollarshaveclub.com slash timesuck. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash timesuck. Seriously, try it. I did. You will not regret it. I have not. All right. June 18th, 1953, MLK and Coretta return to Georgia to have MLK Sr. marry them and then return to Boston to begin their married life together. MLK would lean on Coretta, whom he called Corey, during times of doubt while fighting for social injustice. So, excuse me, while fighting for social injustice. That would be a totally different narrative if he was fighting against it. Uh, Dr. King didn't bring her uh, into the movement, you know, like uh, I feel like a lot of people assume, including myself. She was already in. If anything, she led him uh, more than he led her. And again, I had no idea that was the case. I just assumed, I guess, for some reason. Well, you know, I assumed because I feel like a lot of the articles I read and things that I've watched previously do kind of want to push this narrative of, you know, they had trouble in their marriage and the trouble was because of, you know, the, the people that kind of, you know, started, you know, the death threats and things towards the house. Uh, at one point you'll find later on there was a, a bomb went off in their house and like, like, like she wanted him to stop what he was doing when apparently that was not true at all. She was just as involved in the social justice movement as he was and actually pushed him in times of doubt rather than vice versa. So pretty cool. She was a social uh, a champion for social justice in her own right. Well, 1954, 1955, let's talk about that. While completing his doctorate at Boston University, MLK received job interest from a church in Massachusetts, a church in New York, three universities offering teaching positions, uh, uh, also a deanship, administrative position. While weighing his options, MLK was uh, also invited to give a guest sermon at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, a city known as the Cradle of the Confederacy. This is where Jefferson Davis took his oath to become president of the Confederate States in 1861. This is a city where the first Confederate flag was made and unfurled. Well, a month after his guest sermon, uh, the church offered him a position as full-time pastor, and he turned down the rest of those career options and he just went for it. Despite Coretta having more opportunities for a career as a singer back east than the Deep South, despite the different level of segregation that existed in the Deep South, despite King having to put off or even possibly give up a career as an educator to become a pastor, Martin and Coretta chose Montgomery out of a sense of moral obligation. They felt they could do the most good there. They thought they should have both returned to the South. Coretta was from Alabama, at least for a few years. MLK completed his doctoral thesis while at Dexter, working on it before and after his church duties for hours. Well, MLK began uh, becoming a social activist uh, in earnest, no longer just studying it while at Dexter. He insisted that all church members become registered voters and that they also become active in the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Well, on November 17th, 1955, Martin and Coretta had their first of four children, Yolanda. And then a few weeks later, all hell broke loose 
with the Civil Rights Movement. On December 1, 1955, Rosa Parks, a member of King's Congregation at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, refused to move to the back of the bus. She said when she was asked by the driver to move, she thought of Emmett Till, a young African-American man that had been brutally murdered in Mississippi for flirting with a white woman recently. King had spoken about this murder at a sermon at the Dexter Church on November 27th. Rosa was charged on breaking a segregation law and taken to jail. She was then charged with disorderly conduct in addition to violating the segregation code, was fined $10 and an additional $4 in court costs. In response, Dr. King and other church and local social rights leaders decided to ask their congregation to boycott the Montgomery buses. Thousands joined. King thought of Thoreau's civil disobedience. He wanted to refuse to cooperate with an unjust and oppressive government system. Hundreds of African-American taxi drivers also offered their services. They offered to drive former bus users for free. Uh, When the city pointed out that free taxi rides were actually illegal and they needed to charge a minimum of 45 cents for all rides, 300 additional volunteers offered just to drive people where they needed to go. Church leaders put together all the necessary routes to replicate the bus routes, and it worked. Genius. The mayor and the city council, not amused. Their rigid, white buttholes... Puckered so tightly, many of them would soon die from septic poisoning when they could no longer shit. But seriously, they were not happy. They asked white business owners to stop giving black employees uh, rides to work. They told the black community of Alabama that they were more than happy for African Americans to never use the buses ever again. Fuck, they were assholes. Uh, January 26, 1956. King himself is arrested for help giving boycotted uh, boycotting churchgoers rides. He's riding with a friend, Robert Williams, and church secretary, Lily Thomas. They just picked up three members of the congregation who needed rides when they were stopped by two motorcycle policemen for traveling 30 in a 25. That's right. They were stopped for traveling 30 miles per hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone. He's arrested, fingerprinted, photographed, and jailed. Can you believe that shit? Fingerprinted for going 30 to 25. I'd be fucking pissed for getting a warning. For going 30 to 25. There's a lot of awesome police officers out there. I think most are awesome. Most police officers are probably fantastic human beings who've dedicated their lives to the social good. But if you pull someone over for going 30 to 25, why don't you go fuck yourself? Oh, you're an asshole. According to King, on this day and the previous two more, uh, more than 100 traffic citations were issued to carpool drivers. Those Montgomery sons of bitches were gunning for him and gunning for his cause. Friends of King bailed him out that night and said, uh, he said his resolve for creating meaningful social change was now stronger than ever. I'm guessing his secret resolve for wedging his foot deep into a policeman's asshole was also strong as well. The boycott of public buses by blacks in uh, Montgomery began on the day of Park's court hearing and lasted 381 days, over a year. Protesters demanding that the, that uh, more African-American uh, bus drivers are hired or started to be hired at all, and, and also that they, that they institute a first-come, first-serve style of integrated seating amongst uh, many other equal rights. The U.S. Supreme Court ultimately ordered Montgomery to integrate its bus system. Rosa Parks became a civil rights icon, and Martin Luther King Jr. emerged as a prominent national leader of the American Civil Rights Movement. The American Civil Rights Movement had begun for real now. In early January 1956, King began to understand that this movement could kill him as well. He began receiving death threats and even heard from a white friend that plans were being made to take his life. He feared for himself and for his family but refused to give in to hate. And then on January 30th, 1956, King learned that these threats were real. At 9.15 p.m., while he's attending a church meeting, his house is literally bombed. His wife and Yolanda were home at the time but luckily were uninjured even though major damage was done to the front of the house. 
Coretta was even calm by the time MLK got home. His congregation was naturally shaken up by the incident, as was King, but he chose to press on with the conviction that their cause was just and his support of his wife. King's neighbors showed up, many of whom were armed. They outnumbered the police who showed up. Threats started getting tossed around. King's nonviolent movement was about to turn violent, but he himself calmed down the mob. He spoke to the mob, urged them to remain to be law-abiding citizens. He told them that he who lives by the sword perishes by the sword. What fucking commitment to nonviolence. The composure on that motherfucker. Unbelievable. February 21st, 1956, two months after the Montgomery bus boycott began, Martin Luther King Jr. and 88 fellow African Americans are indicted by a grand jury of 17 whites and one uh, probably obviously heavily bullied African American uh, for violating Alabama's anti-boycott law. Uh, apparently, the atmosphere at the jail was one of almost holiday celebration, though. More citizens ran, actually, ran down to actually get arrested. No one was trying to evade arrest. Everyone was so proud to be part of something bigger than themselves, something just. Everyone was proud to no longer be afraid of the Montgomery police to join together, stand up to them. A friend of MLK paid Dr. King's bond, and he went home after spending just a few minutes in jail. Once again, MLK's conviction increased in the belief that non-cooperation with the forces of evil is just as important as cooperation with the forces of good. The teachings of Thoreau still echoed in his mind, and now the African-American community of Montgomery, Alabama, was galvanizing around this ideal as well. Local white bigots didn't know it yet, but segregation was breathing its last death rattles. African-Americans weren't going to be sold on the separate but equal bullshit philosophy of segregation anymore, but King, because King was teaching them that separate but equal is logically impossible. It's a fallacy. It's not, it's not true. can't be. Change was coming, but it wasn't going to come easy. 1957, integration met with significant resistance and even violence. While the buses themselves were integrated after the Supreme Court's ruling, on December 20, 1956, Montgomery maintained segregated bus stops. Also, snipers began firing into buses, and one shattered both legs of a pregnant African-American passenger. In January 1957, four black churches and the homes of prominent black leaders were also bombed. A bomb at King's house was defused. Luckily, no one was killed and these bombings, these initial bombings. On January 30th, 1957, the Montgomery police arrested seven bombers. All were members of the white supremacist group, the Ku Klux Klan, KKK. The arrest largely brought an end to the busing-related violence. However, the seven men were found not guilty by the jury, even though the men had signed confessions saying they did it. Unfucking real Can you imagine if someone bombed your house, confessed to it, and then was still found not guilty? Incredible that a massive violent riot didn't break out. Some of the white citizens in Montgomery weren't psychologically ready for segregation, clearly. Um, MLK recalled on one of his first bus rides when an elderly white man chose to stand next to the bus driver rather than sit in one of the many empty seats in the back of the bus. When someone asked him just to please have a seat, he said, and I apologize for the word I'm about to say, but I say it only because it's a direct quote that Martin Luther King you know, shared, and I feel it's important to stay true to his words. Like apparently this old white man said, I would rather die and go to hell than sit behind a nigger. He said uh, in another incident, there was a white woman who unknowingly sat next to a black man. He witnessed this. When she realized who she was sitting next to, she jumped up from her seat, startled and screamed. And again, I apologize. What are these niggers going to do next? Holy shit. Fuck. Think about the hate behind these statements, how deep it ran in these people. The rage, you know, from just being forced to, to live uh, amongst African Americans, you know, to live with them as equals. See, that the anger it inspired in these people. The more I read about King, the more I truly begin to understand the hurt and the hatred that goes into that dreaded word. Other words have been used to de dehumanize and subjugate members of other races or sexual orientations and genders. I know that's not the only bad word out there, but no word has a dark, 
history, has as dark a history in recent times in America, I don't think, as, as the N-bomb. Outside of a direct quote, you know, I, I have zero interest in saying it uh, out of respect for its very painful legacy. Uh, so much else to worry about in life, man. Paying the bills, navigating the healthcare crisis, finding and keeping romantic love, raising kids, the death of loved ones, the struggle of achieving a, a career and personal goals. Then we have to add irrational hatred of other people dealing with the same fears as us to the list. So much self-imposed, silly, needless stress some of us choose to add to our lives, right? Such a tremendous waste of energy. Think of how much more good could be achieved in the world if we stopped worrying about made-up boogeymen. You know, right now we have more people protesting the, the passing of laws related to homosexual and transgender rights, you know? Are we not more people? We have people. I mean, really? You have nothing better to do than fight to oppress someone who doesn't want to use their dick the same way you use yours? You have to fuck with someone who'd rather have a woman's hand touch her clitoris than a man's? What the? Why? Take a look at yourself in the mirror and then break that mirror with your fucking willfully ignorant face, you evolutionary obstacle. Ah. Stuff, you know, fires me up, fires me up. It's just, it's just, again, so needless, man. So needless, so much needless tragedy in the world. October 3rd, 1957. By the fall of 1957, things had comparatively calmed down a little bit in Montgomery. Martin and Coretta welcomed their second child into the world on October 3rd, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the third. Uh, ironically, MLK the third is now the head, this is of the KKK in South Carolina. What the fucking, why would he do that? Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, that would be a Tila tequila level of insanity. Uh, by the way, she's an Asian uh, woman who's aligned herself with white supremacists for real, if you don't know. That, that level of stupid actually does exist in the world. Uh, November 30th, 1957, uh, MLK's account of the Montgomery bus boycott is published as the book Stride Toward Freedom. It's readily available online if you want to buy it or you can listen to it on Audible. I'm guessing it's at your local library as well if you want to learn more about the Montgomery bus boycott and King's uh, perspective on it. September 20th, 1958, uh, this book almost uh, cost uh, MLK his life. When he is signing copies of it uh, in Bloomstein's department store in Harlem, and Isola Curry, a well-dressed but mentally ill African-American 42-year-old woman, approaches him. Uh, MLK was getting more and more well-known in 1958 as a civil rights leader. He'd met with President Eisenhower on June 23rd of 1958 to discuss the civil rights movement. He'd already met with Vice President Nixon the year before, and then in a bookstore in Harlem, his fame almost gets him killed. Well, Zola approaches the reverend and asks him if it was really him. When he replies yes, she says, I've been looking for you for five years, and then plunges a letter opener deep into his chest. A letter opener. Uh, When police arrive at the scene, they find the uh, civil rights leader sitting in a chair with the letter opener's ivory handle still protruding just below his collar. I'll uh, I'll put a picture of this on timesuckpodcast.com, by the way. It's amazing how just fucking calm the dude is. He is just cool as a cucumber with this handle sticking out of his chest. She just she plunged that shit deep into him. Fearful of the blade's proximity to King's heart, Officer Al H- Howard warned him, don't sneeze, don't even speak. Officer Howard and another officer, Phil Romano, kept MLK calm and got him to, uh, into surgery. Now, one of King's surgeons uh, told him after operating on him that the police officer's warning had been right. The edge of the blade had been resting, actually resting on his aorta. And a sneeze would have caused a fatal puncture. As fate would have it, uh, the two officers that helped King at the book signing and the two surgeons who operated on him were racially mixed. It was one black officer working with one white officer and one black surgeon working with one white surgeon. Those are the people who saved him. How cool is that, man? How cool is that? A little bright spot in a cloudy day. A little racial equality saving King's life. Azola would spend the next 14 years of her life in the Matawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane and spend the rest of her life after that in other mental health facilities. Uh, while recovering in the hospital, MLK also received a letter from a young white high school student who had heard that if he had sneezed, he would have died, and she told him that she just wanted to say she was so glad that he didn't sneeze. Yeah, he remembered that uh, always. 
a little bit of hope again in the darkness. As King recovered in the hospital and reflected on his movement, he forgave his attacker and became even further convinced that this is his example of nonviolent resistance could inspire America and also the world. 1959, on uh, February uh, 3rd, 1959, King begins a five-week tour of India. King told a group of reporters gathered at the airport when he arrived, to other countries I may go as a tourist, but to India I come as a pilgrim. Well, throughout his visit, King received invitations to hundreds of engagements. The people showered upon me the most generous hospitality imaginable. Almost every door was open uh, so, that our, so that our party, our party, King recalled, was able to see some of India's most important social experiments and talk with leaders in and out of government, including the prime minister. King's popularity in India revealed the extent to which the Montgomery bus boycott had been covered in India and throughout the world. We were looked upon as brothers with the color of our skins as something of an asset, King recalled. But the strongest bond of fraternity was the common cause of minority and colonial peoples in America, Africa, and Asia struggling to throw off racism and imperialism. Upon his return from India, King compared the discrimination of India's untouchables, the lowest members of Hinduism's ancient social caste system, with America's race problems, noting that India's leaders publicly endorsed integration laws. This has not been done so largely, so largely in America, King wrote. He added, today no leader in India would dare to make a public endorsement of untouchability. But in America, every day some leader endorses racial segregation. Motherfucker. I added that last word. That was not part of King's quote. That would be great, though, if it was. If every once in a while, if, when you're reading King's stuff, you're like, did he just say motherfucker? Uh, King was inspired by Indian leaders seeking to reform a centuries-old tradition of social inequality. King's trip to India had a profound influence on his understanding of nonviolent resistance and his commitment to America's struggle for civil rights. In a radio address made during his final evening in India, King reflected, Since being in India, I am more convinced than ever before that the method of nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppressed people in their struggle for justice and human dignity. In a real sense, Mahatma Gandhi... Mahatma Gandhi embodied in his life certain universal principles that are inherent in the moral structure of the universe, and these principles are as inescapable as the law of gravitation. Huh. All right. That's powerful stuff. I was laughing for a second, by the way, too, because I almost said, you guys almost said, like, Mahat, Mahatta Gandhi. I, oh, man. I would have caught hell for that. Fucking thousand emails. What the fuck are you talking about, Mahatta? It's Mahatma. 1960, Dr. King returned with his family to Atlanta, became co-pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church with his father. He was reluctant to leave Montgomery, but felt that Atlanta was a better place to base his activism, and also his family could help Coretta with his kids during his frequent travels. June 23, 1960, he meets with future President JFK for the first time, uh, the soon-to-be-nominated Democratic candidate for president, and as fate would have it, MLK, uh, would also become pregnant with JFK's baby. Was there no one JFK wouldn't sleep with? No. MLK was impressed with JFK's interest in the civil rights movement and willingness to learn more about it. The two also spoke with civil rights attorney Francis M. Kilroy and another pastor, Lionel Germain Kelly. So JFK, MLK, FMK, and LJK, uh, they were able to meet and talk, and they were also able to discuss uh, you know, politics with some Southern political activists, some white Southern political activists, Richard Martin Kavanaugh and J Jonathan James Kilroy. So by the end of the meeting, JFK, MLK, FMK, uh, LJK, RMK, and JJK uh, couldn't remember who said what because there were just way too many fucking dudes with similar initials who insisted on being referred to by those initials. To this day, historians still argue and debate who came up with the idea of affirmative action. Was it FMK talking to LJK or was it JJK telling RMK to have MLK push JFK to get rid of the KKK? 
I'm kidding, of course. Only MLK and JFK met that day. The KKK probably did come up, but the other acronyms are complete nonsense, okay? Okay. The two discussed numerous issues, but uh, focused on voter registra- registration primarily. African Americans had recently ran into problems with intimidation at voting booths across the South where they were not allowed to cast their votes or their votes were not counted. JFK promised that the civil rights struggle will be an important aspect of his presidency, and they, the two men would continue to correspond until JFK's assassination. On October 19, 1960, MLK would be arrested, along with some 280 students for, for participating in a student sit-in. The student sit-ins of 1960 started on February 1st, 1960, when four black students from North Carolina A&T College sat down at a Woolworth lunch counter in downtown Greensboro, North Carolina. They purchased several items in the store before sitting at the counter reserved for white customers. When a waitress asked them to leave, they politely refused, and then to their surprise, they were not arrested. The four students remained seated for almost an hour until the store closed. Well, the following morning, about two dozen students arrived at Woolworths, at Woolworths and sat at the lunch counter as well. Although not, no confrontations occurred, the second sit-in attracted the local media. By day three of the campaign, the students formed the Student Executive Committee for Justice to coordinate protests. The Greensboro protesters eventually agreed to the mayor's request to halt protest activities while city officials sought a just and honorable solution. But then, black students and other communities began to launch counter pro- uh, to began to launch lunch counter protests of their own. By the end of the month, sit-ins had taken place at more than 30 locations in seven states, and by the end of April, over 50,000 students had participated. Nonviolence was a central component of these student-led demonstrations. However, many protesters were not met with peaceful responses from the public. Although protesters were routinely heckled and beaten by segregationists and arrested by police, their determination was unyielding. King wrote, the key significance of the student movement lies in the fact from its inception everywhere it has combined direct action with nonviolence. This quality has given it the extraordinary power and discipline which every thinking person observes. In October 1960, Atlanta student leaders convinced Dr. King himself to participate in a student sit-in at Rich's, a local department store. King and about 300 students were arrested. The students were later released, but King remained in jail while Georgia officials determined whether his sit-in arrest violated parole conditions King had received a month earlier after driving with a suspended license, undoubtedly suspended over some bullshit. After being sentenced to six months of hard labor at Georgia State Prison at Reedsville, presidential hopeful John F. Kennedy and his campaign manager and brother, Robert Kennedy, JFK and RFK, helped secure MLK's release. The intervention in this case uh, helped contribute to Kennedy's narrow victory over Richard Nixon in the presidential election. Right? So their relationship really was legit. Uh, six months uh, hard labor, man, for not obeying the unjust law of segregation. What laws uh, of today will people look back on as being as idiotic and inhumane, if any? Uh, I'm guessing if there are, it's right, probably some drug laws, right? Spending life in prison because you, you want to alter your mind in a way that doesn't hurt anyone else. Uh, in a way that the government doesn't approve of, you know, it's just fucking idiotic. What a waste of taxpayer money. What a waste of a life. MLK, JFK, and RFK joined forces for the mutual benefit of all involved in the nation itself, and all three were later assassinated. Were they killed for challenging the status quo a little too aggressively for the comfort level of the powers that be, or is it a bad idea to go by an acronym that ends in K? Sadly, uh, most prominent KKK members have led assassination-free lives so the acronym probably doesn't have shit to do with shit. Okay, January 31, 1961. Dexter Scott, King's 
uh, third child is born. Uh, 1961 also found MLK heavily involved in the Albany movement, a movement aimed to end all forms of racial segregation in the city of Albany, Georgia. Focusing initially on desegregating travel facilities, forming a permanent biracial committee to discuss further desegregation and release of those jailed in segregation protests. By December 1961, more than 500 protesters were jailed and negotiations with city officials began. Uh, they were literally just running out of room to jail people. King arrived in Albany, Albany on December 15th to support the movement and spoke at a mass meeting at Shiloh Baptist Church. On December 16th, King was jailed after joining a public demonstration in Alabama against segregation, charged with parading without a permit, disturbing the peace, and obstructing the sidewalk. He'd served 45 days in jail for peacefully standing up to segregation. I spent a night in jail in 2010 for driving a, a car into a tree while drunk. Not my finest moment. Don't take drunk driving lightly. Learn my lesson. King got 45 days in jail for participating in a peaceful protest. It is amazing that African Americans didn't just start killing white people by the thousands in the 60s or the 50s uh, or basically in any decade during the entire history of the U.S. before the 70s. The amount of bullshit they faced and endured just to be treated equally is mind-blowing. King was released uh, well before his 45 days were up, two weeks into his sentence, after protests really picked up once he went to jail. And then an unidentified man paid his bail. Probably the fucking mayor. Just, like, just get him out of here. He's causing a lot of problems. Uh, sounds like the police might have just probably, yeah, let him go. Just, you know, just to deal with the extra heat brought on by King's incarceration. The protest eventually brought Albany to its knees. Uh, businesses suffered as African-American residents boycotted them. Some went out of business altogether. New businesses refused to move to town because the town appeared too unstable. The city had closed its parks so that African-Americans couldn't use them. But then white residents couldn't use them either. So they were getting fucking pissed about that. However... King would leave Albany before integration was achieved. The city failed to cave to the protests. They would rather see the entire city fail than see it become integrated. That's how fucking racist these people were. They would rather let the entire city collapse in on itself rather than share water fountains, bus rides, and lunch counters with African Americans. Wow. Albany would finally get rid of segregation, uh, segregation the following spring after continued protest efforts and after the election of African American businessman Thomas Chapman to a city commission seat. All right, 1962. In 1962, the nation saw that MLK truly practiced what he preached when it came to nonviolent resistance. In Birmingham, Alabama, on September 28, 1962, Dr. King was giving the closing speech of the uh, four-day annual meeting of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The auditorium was packed, 300 people, mostly black religious and civil rights leaders from all over the South who had organized and participated in numerous boycotts, protests, rallies, marches, all of them conducted peacefully, following the guidance of Dr. King. In the sixth row that day sat Roy James, a six-foot, two-inch, 200-pound white man and member of the American Nazi Party. James grew angrier as Dr. King spoke and then suddenly bolted on stage, slammed his right fist into Dr. King's left cheek, hitting the five-foot, seven-inch civil rights, civil rights leader so hard, standing backward into a partial turn, James kept punching him in rapid-fire succession as the audience screamed in horror. As people rushed to the stage, there was an instant when Dr. King was able to stand and face James. As James got ready to hit Dr. King again, the civil rights leader dropped his hands, looked his assailant dead in the eyes. Dr. King was bleeding profusely from the, uh, his punches at this point. His lips and his face are rapidly swelling, and his ears, neck, and back are aching from the punches that had just been uh, landed upon him. And then MLK, you know, did as taught by his religion, and he turned the other cheek. He refused to defend himself or strike back. And then James was so stunned at Dr. King's reaction— the two men just silently stared at each other. As other members of the meeting, a meeting clearly open to the public, uh, started to reach for James, Dr. King's voice rang out, don't touch him. 
And then again, don't touch him. We have to pray for him. And no one harmed James. Instead, they prayed for him. Then MLK took James into a private room and the two men calmly spoke. Afterward, Dr. King declined to press assault charges. Roy James was still prosecuted, uh, served 30 days in jail, paid a $25 fine. Man, if anyone ever doubted King's commitment to nonviolence, they would never doubt it again after this beatdown in Birmingham. Again, man, the composure this dude had was saint-like. All right, 1963, on March 28th, Bernice Albertine, King's fourth child, is born. In April 1963, King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference joined with Birmingham, Alabama's existing local movement, the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, in a massive direct action campaign to attack the city's segregation system by putting pressure on Birmingham's merchants during the Easter season, second biggest shopping season of the year. On April 3rd, the desegregation campaign was launched with a series of mass meetings, direct actions, lunch counter sit-ins, marches on City Hall, and a boycott of downtown merchants. King spoke to the black citizens about the philosophy of nonviolence and its methods, extended appeals for volunteers at the end of the mass meetings. When the number of volunteers increased daily, actions soon expanded to kneel-ins at churches, sit-ins at the library, and a march on the county building to register voters. Hundreds were arrested. On April 10th, the city government obtained a state circuit court injunction against the protest. After heavy debate, campaign leaders decided to disobey the court order. King declared, We cannot, in all good conscience, obey such an injunction which is unjust, undemocratic, and an unconstitutional misuse of the legal process. Plans to continue to submit to arrest were threatened, however, because the money available for cash bonds was depleted, so leaders could no longer guarantee that arrested protesters would be released, couldn't bail them out. King contemplated whether he should be arrested. Given the lack of bail funds, King's services as a fundraiser were desperately needed. But King also worried that his failure to submit to arrests might undermine his credibility. He concluded that he must risk going to jail in Birmingham and told his colleagues, I don't know what will happen. I don't know where the money will come from, but I have to make a faith act. On Good Friday, April 12th, King was arrested in Birmingham after violating the anti-protest injunction and was kept in solitary confinement. During this time, King penned the letter from Birmingham jail on the margins of the Birmingham News in reaction to a statement published in the newspaper by eight Birmingham clergymen condemning the protests. King's request to call his wife Coretta Scott King who was at home in Atlanta, recovering from the birth of their fourth child, was denied. After she communicated her concern to the Kennedy administration, Birmingham officials permitted King to call home. Bail money was made available, and then he was released on April 20, 1963. King's letter from Birmingham jail as published, uh, was published in a variety of formats as a pamphlet distributed by the American Friends Service Committee and as an article in periodicals such as Christian Century, Christianity in Crisis, The New York Post, and Ebony Magazine. The first half of the letter was introduced into testimony before Congress by Representative William Fitz Ryan, a Democrat from New York, and published in the Congressional Record. One year later, King revised the letter and presented it as a chapter in his 1964 memoir of the Birmingham campaign, Why We Can't Wait, a book modeled after the basic theme set out in later letter from Birmingham jail. Here are a few excerpts from that letter, a letter written in response to eight Birmingham clergy members who wrote a criticism of the campaign that was published in the Birmingham News on the day of King's arrest, calling its direct direct action strategy unwise and untimely, and appealing to both our white and Negro citizenry to observe the principles of law and order and common sense. And again, I apologize for any insensitive words, but I've chosen to stay true, Dr. King's words, to properly convey uh, the power he wanted them to convey. If you'd like to read the full letter, just Google letter from Birmingham jail. It's not hard to find. And this is a little bit of what he says. Again, this is in response to people telling him like, hey man, you should have waited. My dear fellow clergymen, 
While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of police brutality is known in every section of the country. Its unjust treatment of Negroes in the courts is a notorious reality. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any city in this nation. These are the hard, brutal, and unbelievable facts. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without legal and nonviolent pressure. History is a long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and give up their unjust posture, but groups are more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see the tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking in agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging sins, reading white men and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John. And when your wife and mother are never given the respected title of Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly a tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, plagued with inner fears and outer resentments when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Wow! God damn, the man was an eloquent, formidable writer. Was he not? I teared up at times reading those words. Especially the last bit, man. I can't imagine as a father telling my kids that they couldn't go to some Disneyland equivalent because society didn't deem them worthy of admission. I'm fucking real. Again, so impressed that that a bloody race war just didn't break out. African Americans' violent actions would have been totally morally justified in my mind, you know? Enough is enough. Such a long history and still having to deal with the shit. August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., the African-American civil rights movement reaches its high-water mark when Martin Luther King Jr. speaks to about 250,000 people attending the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. The demonstrators, black and white, poor and rich, 
came together in the nation's capital to demand voting rights and equal opportunity for African Americans and to appeal for an end to racial segregation and discrimination. The peaceful rally was the largest assembly for a redress of grievances that the capital had ever seen, and King was the last speaker. With the statue of Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator towering behind him, King gave what many historians consider to be the greatest speech of the 20th century. Here is a little piece of it. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. Wow. Man, that's powerful. Man, reaching back all the way from 1963, pulling on the heartstrings in 2017. That doesn't fade. And underneath this magnificent speech, this monumentous, powerful, beautiful speech, there is a comment section. A comment section that quickly transforms Dr. King's beautiful dreams into an idiotic hateful nightmare. And it is from this comment section that we will find today's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. Internet. Okay, so these are uh, all comments I found on underneath the YouTube video titled Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream Speech, August 28, 1963, posted by SullenToys.com, uh, a website that appears to sell extremely creepy dolls. And, and only that, uh, a line of <laughs> extremely creepy dolls called the Living Dead Dolls that come inside of tiny coffins. Who would have guessed this speech was posted by that user? Okay. As of my viewing, uh, this video published on tw- uh, January 20th, 19, or 2011, has uh, 8,912,928 views, uh, has 68,360 likes. That's awesome. That's great. But it also has 1,999 likes. Why? Why? Not as great. Now, to be fair, there are a lot of positive, warm comments, uh, like such as uh, two years ago, Richard Krasta posted, one of the greatest, most soul-stirring speeches of all time. Still gives me the goosebumps, though I have listened to it perhaps 10 times. It ought to be memorized by every American high school child, at least honor students before they graduate. I like, I like that he stipulates honor students. The dumb ones don't even fucking, they don't even need to worry about it, but the smart ones should really take this to heart. Well, I agree with your sentiment, uh, Richard. I agree with that. But then underneath this comment, uh, the idiots began to reveal themselves. Idiots like First Person Watcher, who leaves a sub-comment of Adolf Hitler's speeches of the world was powerful to me. The same charisma and power. Okay, likes to use the word power, doesn't like proper grammar. Really? You fucking idiot? Hitler is what you took away from MLK's speech, you jackass? That's what you got out of this video, that MLK reminds you of Hitler. Uh... (laughs) Apparently, First Person Watcher really focuses on the performance angle uh, of speeches rather than the message of the speeches themselves. 
uh, first person watcher with some weird, like dark, mysterious little profile pic, by the way, guaranteed that fucking pathetic troll still lives at home. He's not paying his own bills. Uh, there's also the the harmless idiocy of the <laughs> the comments by users like, okay, you know, whatever. I already fucking hate that person. Just just based on that, that. Just based on the username of, okay, you know, whatever. God, go fuck yourself. This person asked, why does he have to start with his overdramatic preacher voice already in the first sentence? Kind of ruins his speech for me since I'm not a fan of this whole church preacher thing. Why does he start with the dramatic preacher voice? Because he is a preacher, you fucking halfwit. He's a southern preacher. How did you think he was going to deliver his speech, you ass clown? NPR style? I have a dream that one day, on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. That's not fucking charismatic, you asshole. And who are you to criticize one of the greatest speeches ever? Okay, you know, whatever, you waste of carbon. Go back to playing video games 12 hours a day and never contributing anything meaningful to the world ever. This is the kind of idiot who leaves a review on a Metallica album and gives it like one star and then say like, I just like country music more. I don't like metal. What are you doing here? And then there's the uh, innocent idiocy of user Samurai Jackie. Who, say, who says, I'm a Filipino. I truly respect Martin Luther King for reuniting the black and white peoples. Now they realize how the black people are famous in the other country, just like LeBron James. Oh, you get it, Samurai Jack, Jackie. You can't speak English well. You can't, but who cares? You, you get it. You, re- you understand his message. What MLK really wanted was for more African-American people to be famous. That's, that's what it's about, fame. You get it. The dream was always about fame the whole time. And it was mostly about LeBron James. LeBron James is the culmination of King's vision. Not Obama becoming president. Not the end of segregation. No, playing basketball really well and being recognized internationally for this athletic skill. That's what MLK was talking about. Finally. Good job, Samurai Jackie. Uh, And then there's a silly word slip up that just kind of made me laugh. Uh, Frederick BH1 said, was I the only one getting goosebumps? Yep. You probably were the only one getting goosebumps because those aren't real things. Goosebumps, that sounds like a horrific version of goosebumps when instead of muscles contracting and hair follicles tightening, causing hair to stand up, your muscles literally shoot your fucking body hair completely out of your body with explosive bomb-like force. Just take cover. There's a goosebump going off. Uh, there are too many white racist idiots account in this speech's comment section. Hundreds if not thousands of N-bombs dropped. Uh, really disgraceful. Really despicable. Just a bunch of trolling. Disgusting racial slurs, stereotypes slung all over the place by scared, ignorant, sometimes evil people. Uh, I saw no intelligence behind any of them, nothing creative. Uh, but then there's also a lot of racist comments left by users who are not white. And after spending this uh, past week uh, in the King Time Suck, I, I feel like those comments actually would have maybe hurt him more. Like he refused to lower himself to the level of the white oppressor and he expected his followers to do the same. The most ridiculous commentator I found, or commenter, commenter uh, was a guy going by True Golden Boy Champ. And I know for sure he's African American uh, because he posts selfie videos, you know, or video, t- video records himself. Uh, in addition, just leaving comments on other videos, and his his videos are ah, they're exactly what you think they would be after what I'm about to tell you. Um, he is something else, and I, I spent way too much time watching his videos and reading his comments. On on this particular YouTube thread, because I'm staying to just this one today, uh, he starts with the comment. Another great black man killed by the hands of a white man. Very sad. White people are the devils. Children the Bible speaks about. Okay. 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 Getting a little crazy. 
with the labeling of all white people as Christian devils, but I understand the sentiment. I do. I understand the emotion. I understand getting worked up with that. I do. I really do. Uh, user Patrick Slammon uh, then tries to bring Golden Boy to reason. And he says, this whole speech is about judging by character and not by race. And yet you still attribute the actions of one person that happened to be white to the white race. Well, Golden Boy isn't interested in reason, all right? He's not about to hear Patrick's plea. He comes back hard and fast with, white man killed king, so shut the fuck up. (laughs) Slam that door. Patrick gives up trying to calm down the Golden Boy. Tries to give up calming down the champ. Uh, (laughs) um, Another user takes his place. User Bat Wayne says, dude, MLK Jr. literally says not to drink from the glass of bitterness. Don't let one, two, or thousands of a certain race make you view them all that way. Okay, I don't think he, I don't think he says to not literally drink because that would imply that there was an actual glass filled with something called bitterness, and he just didn't want you to actually drink from it. So, uh, man, almost no one knows how to use literally properly. But but anyway, solid solid logic. Other than that, I think MLK would be proud again of the sentiment. Golden Boy doesn't give a fuck. He doubles down on his original position. He comes back with, "Dude, shut the fuck up." White, white man killed king. Never forget that history, dumb gay punk. Wow. We take a left turn into homophobia. Now, King himself took a traditional Christian stance on homosexuality, thinking of it as something that could be cured. And while I strongly believe it's just how you're born, uh, I will say King never verbally attacked or denigrated anyone for their sexual preference. And I think if he would be alive today, he probably would think differently. Uh, He'd be even more tolerant. I I don't think he'd be amused by Golden Boy's homophobia. Well, a string of comments follows of other users addressing another user, Jabbar Patterson, whose account was clearly deactivated for hateful comments. Golden Boy's account remains active, though, despite leaving this next comment in the same thread. He says, white man pulled the trigger on Martin King, death to whitey, race of pigs, dead to their white babies, shoot, kill them in school, thank you, Adam Lanza. Holy shit, did he take it up a notch there? If you don't know, Adam Lanza is a Sandy Hook shooter, the 20-year-old who shot and killed 21st graders and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut on December 14, 2012, after shooting his mom before shooting himself. And Golden Boy just thanked him for that because he's a piece of shit. And he did it under the MLK I Have a Dream speech video. And I don't think he's trolling. I think this is just stuff he believes. Man, MLK was super committed to nonviolence, but I'm guessing a part of him would have at least thought, even if it was just for a flickering moment, about knocking Golden Boy in the mouth after reading that shit. And then I guess he felt like that initial comment wasn't hateful enough, so he leaves another subsequent comment of, Adam Lanza, now that's a great man. Shit, any man that can kill that many crackers kids deserves a tribute. Fucking what? Jesus! By the way, I am uh, reading over a preposterous amount of misspellings. Almost every single word is misspelled. <laughs> After this, uh, Golden Boy rails on for a while, talking about Malcolm X and how he was killed by black you know, sellouts or some shit. Uh, and then he refocuses on the white devils with, You will burn in hell for being half white. God is against mixing. That half devil in you will be the death of you one day. Well, user David Lee then points out, You are as dumb and stupid as the white racists. And Golden Boy comes back with my favorite part of the whole thread. He comes back with, I'm not white, popcorn fart. <laughs> this, this is the best. He's unleashing pure, relentless venom on comment after comment, and then he goes to uh, popcorn fart. Now, I looked popcorn fart up on Urban Dictionary, thinking it was just like maybe some powerfully offensive you know, uh, <laughs> phrase. I just didn't, wasn't aware of its meaning. But the top definition for the po- term popcorn fart is just a faint, non-smelly fart, hardly worth the effort. So it's just like, yeah, it's, it's hardly even worth the effort of shooting up my butt. So it's, it's, it's funny, 
he was, I think that was the funniest thing Golden Boy said, but it's not hardcore. Oh, my God. I just think it's weird when someone starts so strong with profanity but then ends weak. Like, I feel like you're supposed to ramp it up. You don't fizzle out, you know? You're not supposed to be like, well, fuck you, motherfucker. I'll fucking kill you. I'll fucking skull fuck your entire fucking family if you don't stop being a silly goose. It's just weird. It's weird to end. <laughs> you know, weak after so going so hard. And then Golden Boy proceeds to, to argue with various users, continue with his mindless, hateful diatribe, and I'll leave you uh, with what I feel like is the best closing exchange he had, just in terms of nonsense. User Aquaprin asked him the very fair question of, dude, did you even watch the speech? To which Golden Boy then goes to a level of crazy that would give even Alexander Backman and the Reverend Dr. Zach Thunderpaws. He says, I watched the speech and it tells me the white man is the devil. The Bible speaks about blood beast of Europe, eat human flesh in a cave, have sex with dogs, and are evil people who killed Martin King. Wow, so much crazy there. So much crazy packed into one comment. Now look, there is some weird shit in the Bible. Leviticus 2016 does say if a woman has sex with an animal, you must kill both the woman and the animal. They must be put to death and they are responsible for their deaths. But it doesn't talk about eating flesh in a cave and it doesn't specifically mention dogs. I guess maybe dogs are the sexiest animals as far as Golden Boy thinks. You know, and in his mind, if you're going to have sex with an animal, you're probably going to fuck a dog. Uh, I do know that MLK never gave a speech about either dog fucking or eating flesh in caves. Pretty sure we'd all know about that if he did. You know, if his dream speech included something like, I have a dream that one day men of all color will be able to fuck dogs in peace. And as they lay down inside their dog fucking cave, exhausted from their carnal pleasure, that men of all colors could feast together upon one another's bodies. And then I woke up from that dream and I thought, what the fuck was that about? No more eating pancakes right before bed. Cobbs give me some crazy thoughts. Well, Golden Boy, if you're out there, uh, maybe take a break from YouTube. Read a book or so, you know, or three or a thousand. Audit some online junior college courses, courses on anything at all. Join a book club at your local library. Do something to no longer have to count yourself among the idiots of the internet. All right, back to the 60s. Back, back, back. 1963, on October 10, 1963, U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy authorized the FBI uh, to begin wiretapping telephones of the Reverend, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Kennedy believed that one of King's closest advisors was a top-level member of the American Communist Party and that King had repeatedly misled administration officials about his ongoing ties with communism. The agency's hidden tape recorders turned up almost nothing about communism, but they did reveal embarrassing details about King's sex life, details the FBI was able to use against him. More on those details later. Uh, the FBI's interest in King intensified after the March on Washington in August 1963 when King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. After the speech, an FBI memo called King the, quote, most dangerous and effective Negro leader in the country. This memo really makes you wonder if the FBI was ever really worried about King's ties to communism or if the government in general was just worried about the power he held within the civil rights movement. Were they worried about a potential communist or were they worried about a strong black man with a large portion of the African-American community behind him who wasn't just going to do what he was told, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, rage against the machine. Well, 1964, King is named Man of the Year by Time Magazine. He publishes Why We Can't Wait, the expansion on his thoughts from his letter from a Birmingham jail. He wins a Nobel Peace Prize. He goes to jail again, again, for demanding service at a white-only restaurant in St. Augustine, Florida. Can you believe that shit? That's like, like, what if you just won, like, a Grammy or an Oscar? Something that, you know, the public recognizes more than a Nobel Peace Prize. And then 
you, I don't know, nothing else is open. So you're just trying to fucking go to a Denny's, just a fucking your bottom basement Denny's. And then the Denny's assistant manager doesn't want to let you in, right? After like that high and then that kind of slap in the face, just, uh-uh, no, uh, you, ain't, you ain't coming here and here. No, no, why, no, sir. Hi, you know, can, uh, can, can we grab a booth? Uh, uh, Ricky Randy, uh, can you come over here for a moment? Uh, sure thing, uh, Rodney Bobby, how can I be assisting you this evening? Well, uh, my knowledge of cinemas do tell me that this is Mr. Denzel Washington here, and I do enjoy his theatrics, but regardless, nonetheless, rules is rules. And his kind ain't allowed to sit here uh, in this fine establishment. You, uh, you, you will be correct, uh, Rodney Bobby. Uh, Mr. Washington, we, we'd be happy to place a moons over my hammy or a country grand slam in a convenient to-go box that, that you could eat out uh, by the dumpster out back. I do appreciate your cinemas, but but I cannot allow allow you to sit here and offend the delicate sensibilities of, of Rochelle Michelle, uh, who's just getting over some diabetes complications, or or, or Rhonda M- Miranda, or, or, or Jackie Susan, who, who's hepatitis C been acting up, or Mr. Dougie Cooter Jeremiah, uh, who's doing his best to tear in his bologna sandwich with the last four teeth, or even the respectable Larry Michael Dingleberry, uh, who likes to have a little space uh, due to frequent and, and violent bouts of explosive diarrhea. You're a fine thespian. But you're just not quite good enough to mix with the fine folks of this here, Donna here. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. He didn't just start punching people every single day. It's amazing he could, he could maintain his level of nonviolence. Amazing he just didn't fucking grab a gun and just walk into a white neighborhood and just start opening fire. Ugh, the constant insults. 1965, in an event that will become known as Bloody Sunday, voting rights marchers are beaten at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, as they attempt to march to Montgomery on March 7th. You probably watched that if you've seen the, the, the movie Selma, a little recreation of that. Now, less than two weeks later, beginning on March 17th, King, James Foreman, and John Lewis lead civil rights marchers for Selma to Montgomery after a U.S. district judge upholds the right of demonstrators to conduct an orderly march. On August 12th, King publicly opposes the Vietnam War at a mass rally at the 9th Annual Convention of the SCLC in Birmingham. And then in 1966, King moves his family to Chicago to draw attention to the city's poor housing conditions. On June 6, 1966, James H. Meredith, who in 1962 became the first African-American to attend the University of Mississippi, is shot by a sniper shortly after beginning a lone civil rights march to the South. Known as the March Against Fear, Meredith had been walking from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi in an attempt to encourage voter registration. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, arrives to continue the march on his behalf. And then James Meredith later recovers and rejoins the march he had originated. And on June 26, the marchers successfully reached Jackson, Mississippi. So there was a variety of these of these marches for voter registration. Uh, on, on April 4th, 1967, King delivers Beyond Vietnam to a gathering of clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam at Riverside Church in New York City. He demands that the U.S. take new initiatives to end the war. In June, King's book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community?, is published, and on December 4th, King publicly reveals his plans to organize a mass civil disobedience campaign, the Poor People's Campaign in Washington, D.C., to force the government to end poverty. The anti-Vietnam speech doesn't earn King any new friends in Washington, D.C. It's not exactly music to the ears of the military-industrial complex. Here's a little excerpt of that. I think it's genius. As I ponder the mar- and this is me, I don't know why. I felt the, I felt the need to add that I'm I was the one going to read that as if you wouldn't figure that out the second I started talking. Like I, I was like, well, I don't want anybody to think it's a video. As if my as if I have this fucking Martin Luther King impersonation that's so spot on, you'd be like, wow, that's that's a video sounds great. Now this is what he says: As I ponder the madness of Vietnam and search within myself for ways to understand and respond to compassion, my mind goes constantly to the people of that peninsula. 
I speak now not of the soldiers of each side, not of the ideologies of the Liberation Front, not of the Junta and Saigon, but simply of the people who have been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them too. Because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution there until some attempt is made to know them and hear their broken cries. They must see Americans as strange liberators. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1954, in 1945 rather, after a combined French and Japanese occupation and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of her former colony. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence, and we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With the tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination and a government that has been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese, Vietnamese have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For the peasants, this new government meant real land reform, one of the most important needs in their lives. Yeah, that is, that is not going to do him any favors with the military-industrial complex. He's basically saying, like, hey, man, this whole fucking Western expansion thing, this whole putting our, uh, you know, hands in, in, in everybody else's pots or whatever that saying is, meddling in everyone else's fares, uh, not good. Well, that, 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 that was exactly the opposite of what America was going for at that time and kind of what we're still going for. We're still fucking everywhere around the world. On March 28th, King leads a march of 6,000 protesters in support of striking sanitation workers in Memphis. The, the march descends into violence and looting, and King is rushed from the scene. On April 3rd, King returns to Memphis, uh, determined to lead a peaceful march. During an evening rally at Mason Temple in Memphis, King delivers his final speech, I've been to the mountaintop. And then the next day, on April 4th, King is shot and killed while standing on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis by known racist and petty criminal James Earl Ray. As he prepared to leave the Lorraine Motel for dinner at the home of Memphis minister Samuel Billy Kyles, Kyle stepped out, King stepped out into the balcony of room 306 to speak with Southern Christian Leadership Conference colleagues standing in the parking area below, and then Ray supposedly stood in the bathtub of a shared bathroom, balanced his rifle on a window ledge, and shot King in the face. SCLC SCLC aides rushed to him, and Ralph Abernathy cradled King's head. Others on the balcony pointed across the street toward the rear of a boarding house on South Main Street where the shots seemed to have originated. An ambulance rushed King to St. Joseph's Hospital where doctors pronounced him dead at 7.05 p.m. News of King's assassination prompted major outbreaks of racial violence across the country, resulting in more than 40 deaths nationwide and extensive property damage in over 100 American cities. President Lyndon B. Johnson then called for a national day of mourning to be observed on April 7th. Ray immediately fled, setting off a manhunt that would last more than two months and cover five countries. At the time, it was said to be the FBI's most expensive and biggest investigation in its history. Finally, on July 19, 1968, the FBI caught up with Ray in London and extradited him to the United States. Ray pled guilty to the murder, a plea he'd spend the rest of his life trying to reverse, and he was sentenced to 99 years in prison. And he died in prison in 1998. But did Ray really kill the man Time Magazine called one of the most uh, 100 most influential people of the 20th century, a visionary described by the magazine as the architect of the 21st century? Did he kill the only American other than George Washington to have his birthday observed as a national holiday? Let's hop out of this timeline and go conspiracy nut for a sec. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. 
Okay, hear me out. In the years following Ray's arrest, questions arose about the exact involvement he had in King's murder. Ray himself countered uh, he was not the only one involved in the crime. He insisted that a man he'd met in Canada who went by the name of Raoul had orchestrated the murder and ultimately shot King. Toward the end of his life, Ray, whose sentence had been extended to 100 years after he escaped from prison in 1977, had the support of an unexpected ally, the King family. Not long before Ray's death, Dexter King, Dr. King's son, visited the man presumed to be his father's killer. Ray, who was feeble and sick from hepatitis C, was asked by King about his involvement in the assassination. He said, I had nothing to do with killing your father, and Ray said, I believe you. Uh, that was what Dexter King uh, said back to him and shook his hand. Ray died at Columbia Nashville Memorial Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee, on April 23rd, 1998. Ray had been treated for liver disease over the years, and according to the Tennessee Department of Correction, he died from kidney failure. Okay, so who was James Earl Ray? Well, he, first off, he was a fugitive when he supposedly killed King. In March 1960, Ray had started a 20-year sentence for numerous crimes, including uh, robbing St. Louis grocery stores while on parole after serving 90 days for robbing a cafe in Los Angeles. Housed at the Missouri State Penitentiary, Ray managed to escape the facility in 1967. He at first fled to Canada, but unable to get on a ship and flee overseas, he returned to the U.S. and made his way to the first uh, Alabama, and then Mexico, then Los Angeles, and of course, eventually making his way to Memphis. He was born on March 10, 1928 in Alton, Illinois, the eldest of George and Lucille Ray's nine children. They were a poor family that moved often. At the age of 16, Ray left his parents and returned to Alton, where he moved in with his grandma and landed work in the dye room of the International Shoe Tannery. After getting laid off in 1945, Ray enlisted in the Army, eventually getting stationed in West Germany, but he found it difficult to adapt to the military's strict codes of conduct. He was charged with drunkenness and breaking arrest before getting discharged for ineptness and lack of adaptability in 1948. Ray's life outside the Army proved even less stable after returning to Alton and moving back in with his grandma, he blazed through a number of odd jobs. In 1949, he left for L.A. and started stealing to make ends meet. So why does a petty criminal who was already on the run from the law, a guy who should be trying to not attract attention to himself, assassinate one of the most recognizable figures of the day. What's his motive? I did some digging into the investigation uh, into Ray done by the House of Representatives Select Committee on Assassinations at the .gov website. Now, this is a committee that was formed in 1976 to investigate the assassinations of both JFK, recent time suck two-part subject, and MLK. They completed their two-year investigation in 1978 and released their findings in 1979. This isn't some investigation done by amateur investigators who run, you know, area51.crystal.nutjob. This isn't uh, a committee organized by David Icke, who also investigate these lizard Illuminati as a suspect. This isn't a committee populated with flat earth believers. This is the government looking into itself. They have every motive to say that there was no conspiracy. However, this committee believed on the basis of the evidence available to it that Kennedy was probably assassinated at the re as a result of a conspiracy. And the committee found that there was likelihood that James Earl Ray assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as a result of a conspiracy. With James Earl Ray, they did feel that he pulled the trigger. Now, there are also some conspiracy theorists who believe that just like a suspected grassy knoll triggerman or, you know, trigger men, uh, there was also someone else who may have fired on King and that, you know, Ray took the fall. There are uh, many people who feel that the trajectory path of the bullet that killed King doesn't match where James Earl Ray fired his rifle from. And there are those who allege that ballistic testing determined Ray's bullets did not match the crime. And it should be noted, uh, James Earl Ray never went on trial for killing King. He struck a plea deal 
and then, uh, you know, tried to get a trial later, a trial that was never granted to him. But not going to go down that rabbit hole today, as tempting as it is. This episode is long enough without it. Uh, just wanted you to know it's out there. No, let's just assume that there is a possibility, as some of King's own family believe, that Ray didn't do it. But rather than exploring that possibility, let's explore uh, the possibility that he did kill King, but that he may not been uh, have been alone, and that, may, that he may have been acting on behalf of someone else, uh, a possibility the House Select C- Committee believed after those two years of research. So who, who may have persuaded him to do it and why? Uh, I think it's very likely that Ray was acting on behalf of others. You know, was he a racist? Yes, based on attitudes uh, uh, of his that came up in the investigation, he was, but no more than a lot of white people in the 60s, assuming most white dudes in the early or mid-20th century were racist, as, as safe, assuming, uh, assuming most men were sexist in the early 19th century, products of their times. But was he racist enough to randomly kill MLK? Nah, I doubt it. No one from the House Investigation Committee felt that racism was the primary motive to killing King. Instead, it was believed that money was the primary motivation. Now, this makes sense to me. This is a dude on the run from the law. He's a wanted man. And this isn't uh, in the 1920s when you could just kind of still live on the lamb and get a regular job. No, police investigation had evolved to the point where James Earl Ray was not going to be able to land a straight job. And this isn't a guy who was interested in those kind of jobs. You know, I mean, sure, he could work, you know, some cash under the table stuff. But, you know, but again, this is not a guy with a a history of steady employment of any kind. He does not seem to be the type of guy who wanted to grind it out, you know, doing low paying construction jobs or something like that. No, he he was a dude uh, with a history of robbing places. He was a guy who liked a quick payday. And he may have thought that killing King would score him some serious dough. The committee found that there was substantial evidence to establish the existence of a St. Louis-based conspiracy to finance the assassination of Dr. King. A serious effort to solicit Russell Byers was made to other potential assassins in late 1966 or early 1967, apparently on behalf of a wider authority. Who was this wider authority? Well, there was another investigation into King's assassination conducted in 1999 after four weeks of testimony and over 70 witnesses in a civil rights trial, or a civil trial, excuse me, I'm so used to saying civil rights today, in a civil trial in Memphis, Tennessee, 12 jurors reached a unanimous verdict on December 8, 1999, after about an hour of deliberations that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated as the result of a government conspiracy. In a press statement held the following day in Atlanta, Mrs. Coretta Scott King welcomed the verdict, saying, There is abundant evidence of a major high-level conspiracy in the assassination of my husband, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the civil court's unanimous verdict has validated our belief. At the trial, Lloyd Jowers, owner of Jim's Grill, which was close to the Lorraine Motel, claimed that the shot which killed Dr. King was fired from behind his restaurant, and that local, state, and federal U.S. government agencies and the mafia were all involved. According to the U.S. Justice Department, which painstakingly attempted to dismantle Jowers' claims, and the mountain of evidence presented in the Memphis trial, Jowers insisted that, quote, a Memphis produce dealer who was involved with the mafia gave Jowers $100,000, uh, gave me, I guess he was saying, Jowers, <laughs> gave me $100,000 to hire an assassin and assured him that the police would not be at the scene of the shooting. Jowers also reported that he hired a hitman to shoot Dr. King from behind Jim's grill and received the murder weapon prior to the killing from someone with a name sounded like Raul. Remember, that was the name uh, that was referenced uh, uh, earlier, we're saying by James Earl Ray. So, you know, I don't know. So, and what did the King family get out of the result of this verdict? A uh, hundred bucks. Seriously, they didn't do it for money. They just wanted the government to admit fault, take some level of responsibility for what it did. But since no one can find the actual government official who called for the assassination, nothing else is going to be done. You know, it's not like the party's responsible if they're even still alive are going to turn themselves in. So if the government had Martin Luther King killed, and if they used, uh, who did they use to do it? I would say CIA. I mean, come on, who else were they going to use? 
Why? Well, you know, if you go with the conclusions I tentatively came to in the JFK episode, maybe because he was rallying the general public against going to war, right? The whole anti-Vietnam thing. And that was going to cause the powers, you know, behind the military industrial complex. That was going to cost them a lot of fucking money. And you don't get to fuck with the power and money like that in a significant way and not risk being silenced. I think that's been true throughout history. Just doesn't happen as often lately. I don't think it happens as, as much lately because it's harder for the government now to get away with that shit, basically, because of modern forensic technology, you know, dissemination of information on the internet, hackers like Anonymous getting a hold of secure classified documents, you know, and releasing them through the, the whole WikiLeaks thing with Julian Assange. Way harder to pull that stuff off now. But was it that hard in the 1960s? I don't think so. And I think that's why people like JFK, MLK, and RFK were killed. Okay. So I'll stop with that now. I don't want you to get all worked up over an assassination theory as credible as it may be. I just want you to know about it. Uh, the real focus of this episode is definitely King's incredible life. Think about his legacy. Would the Civil Rights Act of 1964 have been passed without his tireless work? Maybe not. You know, would Obama have ever become president? Maybe not. The Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University at, uh, is home to the King Papers Project, a comprehensive collection of all of King's speeches, correspondence, and other writings. The institute is also involved with the Liberation Curriculum Initiative and the Gandhi King Community, both of which use King's life and ideas to connect social activists around the world working to promote human rights. Who knows how much good that alone has done? How many other social activists have been inspired directly by his work? Other than his autobiography, I, I learned about the, uh, the Eileen, excuse me, on the Stanford website for researching this time. So great information on that, uh, on Dr. King on that. So, so much, basically just everything about the guy is on that Stanford website. In a speech held in London in 1964, Martin Luther King repeatedly uh, uh, repeated his call for economic sanctions against South Africa. Who knows how much his words, you know, led to ending apartheid in that country. His teachings of tolerance are, are taught to kids across the world and will be for decades, I'm sure. His speeches still touch the lives of new generations of people every day. You know, how many African Americans have found strength to persevere through intolerance in Martin Luther King's words? How many are still comforted by his voice, reminded that they're not alone, reminded that they're just as good as anybody? Powerful shit. But to some, all his messages are null and void because he cheated on his wife. Now, let's talk about that incredibly a ridiculously idiotic evaluation for a second. Uh, you know, uh, let, let, before we really address that, though, let's address his the actual proof of his infidelity. Now, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had authorized King to be wiretapped because of his suspected communist ties, as I mentioned earlier. Well, and as I also mentioned earlier, no evidence of a communist association was ever found. You know, but back in the 50s and 60s, you know, if you weren't walking around chanting America's the best every few minutes and going to bed with a flag up your ass and a bald eagle watching over your house, you were probably a communist. Anyone who questioned anything America did was probably economists, a communist. The good old uh, love it or leave it mentality uh, intellectual simpletons love to rally behind because they're either incapable of complex thought or unwilling to engage in it. Now, while no communist evidence, again, was ever found, uh, you know, in my opinion, he's one of the best Americans we've ever had in the, in the political change sense, evidence of infidelity uh, did apparently come up. In an interview with Jacqueline Kennedy months after her husband's assassination, Mrs. Kennedy recalled that Hoover... Uh, had told her that King had tried to arrange a sex party while in town for the March on Washington. Now, exactly what he said about this sex party remains uncertain because the original surveillance tapes involving King have never been released publicly. They're under seal by court order until 2027. Uh, side note, the gall of Jackie, Jackie Kennedy to come down so hard on adultery. Give me a break. She knew that JFK was fucking just about every other woman in the White House for years, and she never left him, did she? At what point does failure to stand up to adultery become implicit endorsement on some level? Well, because the tapes haven't been released and the loyalty of those who are in his inner circle, uh, as far as not discussing his private life, we'll never know who exactly MLK had affairs with for sure. 
I, well, I guess maybe in 2027 20, we will, but until then we won't. Uh, but supposedly he did have a lot of mistresses. Uh, supposedly he was with one uh, in Memphis the day he was killed. Hoover wrote in one memo that he was like a, quote, tomcat with an obsessive degenerate sexual urge. So let's just say, since we don't know for sure, let's just say for argument's sake that he did cheat on Coretta and that he cheated a lot on Coretta. Let's say he had sex with like 100 or maybe even like 500 other women. Let's just go crazy with it. Does that, would that invalidate everything else he accomplished in his life? No. Uh, it makes him a shitty husband. It doesn't make him a shitty accomplisher of civil rights. Hoover thought it made him a terribly uh, hypocritical pastor. Now, did it? In some sense, sure. I mean, he wasn't honoring his marriage, but you find me any Christian who always follows every rule of the Bible all the time, and I'll cut my own dick off with a rusty knife. And that's not some cheap shot against Christianity. It's just an acknowledgement. There's a lot of rules in the Bible, way too many for anyone to ever follow all of them. I mean, look at just the Ten Commandments alone. Guessing a lot of Christians judging King for infidelity have taken the Lord's name in vain, or worked on the Sabbath, or talked shit to their parents, not honoring their mother and father, or maybe coveted their neighbor's wife or home to covet is to yearn for. You ever yearn for something that wasn't yours? Then calm down on the stone throwing there, Judgey McJudgerson. Logically, when you look at the overall worth of someone in a moral sense, I see it as an addition-subtraction situation. You take the good they've done in the world, and you subtract the bad from it. All right, have they done more good than bad? Well, then overall, in an unemotional sense, I think they're generally a good person. Now, I know this is tricky. How much good do you assign, for example, to leading a civil rights protest march? And how much bad do you assign to putting your penis in a vagina and not attached to your wife? Now, I just think that most of the people who shit on MLK uh, online, especially for being unfaithful and calling him a phony because of his alleged infidelity, are just people who haven't enacted 1% of 1% of 1% of the good he created in the world. That's what annoys me. If you're some lazy fuck who never volunteers, never donates, never inspires anyone, someone living an unmemorable, insignificant life, but you've never been unfaithful, don't go around pretending you're morally superior to MLK. You're probably faithful mostly because no one else wants to fuck you. (laughs) Let's be honest. Maybe maybe you're you know you're faithful because you're moderately uh, physically attractive, and and unambitious, and that's not attractive to anyone. That's no no one's knocking on your door. And again, I'm not saying his alleged infidelities were okay to commit. I'm just saying I think it's okay to overlook them when thinking about his inspiring messages for racial and economic equality. That's all. So wrapping this up, I got to say, this was the most inspiring time suck I've done so far. Really made me think about race inequality in a way I hadn't for years. You know, I've only encountered a hostile form of racism against me personally a few times in my life that I can recall. Uh, The one that stands out the most is when I was 14. I just moved from Riggins, Idaho, where my mom lived, to spend uh, some time with my dad in Las Vegas, Nevada. You know, I, I'd, uh, I, I ended up, end up going to school in Las Vegas uh, for two years, Bonanza High School, before returning to Idaho. And for the first time in my life, uh, I, was at a, I was at a place where I was surrounded by a lot of people who weren't white. You know, it was the first time I encountered racial tension. I, I loved basketball at that time in my life, played it almost every day. And suddenly I was playing it during PE at the beginning of my freshman year at a new school where I had no friends. I was a complete fish out of water. I was playing with a group of mostly black kids, and a few of them, especially one kid, started calling me white boy, started calling me cracker. And at first, I, I thought it was kind of funny, like I didn't know what was going on. I literally didn't even know that cracker was a derogatory term for a white person. So yeah, so I thought I was joking. Uh, but soon I figured out, you know, he, he wasn't joking. He really didn't like me. He hated me. And that he hated me because I was white. And so did the other kids, and they started laughing at me, joining in the name calling, playing a little rough with the fouls, you know. I tried playing harder, thinking I could win the group over, but when I made shots, uh, they hated me more. Made fun of how I uh, had an ugly shot, uh, which in fairness I did. I had a very uh, ugly shot. Uh, made fun of my lack of hops, which again, uh, total fairness, I didn't have any hops. Uh, and then just made fun of how I looked. The fact that I was skinny, that I had a big head, my ears stuck out. I was a goofy looking white boy. And look, I got over it. 
right? I'm not bitter about it, but, but it didn't feel good to be surrounded by a group of people who hated me for something I couldn't change, who felt superior to me, at least in the way of being cool because of the color of my skin. Now, I'll never know what it likes to feel, uh, what it feels like to be African-American. But for some, you know, quite recently and maybe still today in some backwoods shithole, instead of that one experience like I had, an experience that lasted for only about 45 minutes, what if that was life every day, being verbally abused? And for some, my experience would have been a welcome relief for a violent form of racism that was much worse. Ladies and weren't smacking me around, all because of a difference in pigment. So silly and lazy and evil to hate other human beings over pigment or how thick or curly your hair is. Really think about how truly, truly stupid that is. What a waste of effort. Hate people for being sadistic assholes. Hate people for hurting others. Hate them for wearing fucking socks and sandals. You know, those are choices people make. But don't hate them because they slid into the world a little darker or lighter shade of skin than you did. That's just dumb. And MLK, he knew how dumb it was in a way I never will. And he dedicated his life to change things. And it got him arrested time and time again, got his house bombed, got him physically beaten, and he wouldn't give up. And then it got him killed. Inspiring. You know, it makes me think about my own legacy. You know, how do I want to be remembered when I'm gone? What change will, will I make in the world? You know, when have I stood up for something? When have I denounced tyranny and hatred? Well, for me, I think the best thing I may ever do <laughs> in, in a broader sense is maybe this silly little podcast, maybe inspire some curiosity in others. You know, hope I can make it, uh, enough from it to eventually donate to some cool causes as well. And if not, you know, I can volunteer my time. That's something we can all do. Instill the importance of that in other people around us. Instill it in my kids. Now, what about you? What can you do to make one aspect of this life in this world a little bit better than it was when you got here? You know, good things to think about sometimes. Sometimes those thoughts actually do lead to actions. And right now, I need to get some action. I know this thing is, uh, this has been a big episode. I need to get to the action of some ML motherfucking K Top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, African-Americans didn't just have it rough with slavery. They had it rough with segregation as well. Getting beat, shot, and their houses bombed, all for just wanting to eat at the same lunch counter and sit in the same bus seat as everyone else. And all of that less than 60 years ago. Number two, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, an investigative panel formed by the government after two years of research, determined that both MLK and JFK were assassinated as a result of some type of government conspiracy. A separate civil trial found the U.S. government was likely to be involved in the assassination of Dr. King as well. The fucking man, man. Never trust him. Number three. Dr. King was so committed to nonviolence, he not only refused to strike back when he was physically attacked by a white supremacist on stage, he refused to let his supporters harm the guy, then spoke with the man in private at length about his anger. Maybe the most Christ-like thing I can recall someone doing, right? The dude was about as special as they come, flawed for sure, like we all are, but an incredible man. Number four, Dr. King was sentenced to six months hard labor for trying to desegregate an Atlanta department store. Some laws truly are unjust and are meant to be broken. What unjust laws do we have that exist today? And number five, new info. King's mother was also slain by a bullet uh, after King's death on June 30th, 1974, as 69-year-old Alberta Williams King played the organ at a Sunday service inside Ebenezer Baptist Church, the church that King, bingo pastor of, that his dad was, that his grandpa was, Marcus Wayne Chanal Jr., rose from the front pew, drew two pistols, and began to fire shots. One of the bullets struck and killed King, who died steps from where her son had preached nonviolence. The deranged gunman said that the Christians were his enemy, and that although he had received divine instructions to kill King's father, who was in the congregation, he killed King's mother instead because she was closer. The shooting also left a church deacon dead. Chenault received a death penalty sentence that was later changed to life imprisonment, in part due to the King family's opposition to capital punishment and violence. 
Incredible. The King family opposed his death sentence. What an extraordinary commitment to nonviolence. Has anyone ever practiced what they preached more than this family? Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right. Thanks, suckheads, for listening to some MLK inspiration this week. So much impressiveness trapped in one person. Uh, if you want to come check out some stand-up, uh, I'll be at the Laughing Skull Lounge in Atlanta, July 27 through 30. Oh, that's interesting, huh? After all that talk about uh, 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 Martin Luther King, I'm going to be in Atlanta. And then I'll be at the Tampa Improv, August 3 through the 6th. More dates at dancummins.tv or just a link to the tour dates at timesuckpodcast.com. Uh, be sure to follow The Suck on social media. It's back in business. Kicking out new audio previews of the upcoming episodes on Fridays. Other uh, new fun weekly posts coming soon to at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, slash Time Suck Podcast on Facebook. And you can spread this up by sharing that Friday audio preview. Give, give people a little taste. And next week, uh, we are sucking on the lost city of Atlantis. I've been fascinated with the fabled uh, lost city of Atlantis uh, since I was a kid, and I'm not alone. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato described it as a powerful and advanced kingdom that sank in a night and a day into the ocean around 9,600 BC, and that the world has been divided uh, ever since as to whether Plato's story was to be taken as history or, or a, a metaphor ever since. In 1882, former U.S. congressman from Minnesota, Ignatius L. Donnelly, published Atlanta, the Antediluvian World, which touched off a frenzy of works attempting to locate and learn from a historical Atlantis. Donnelly hypothesized an advanced civilization whose immigrants had populated much of ancient Europe, Africa, and the Americas, and whose heroes had inspired Greek, Hindu, and Scandinavian mythology. That's some intense shit. What if that place existed? What if there's a, what if there's a sunken city out there that launched civilization? Well, there's been explorers looking for it, you know? Uh, for many, many years. Will they ever find it? Does it even exist? Will it reveal the origins of Bojangles? Is Bojangles from Atlantis? Such a mysterious topic, and I can't wait to suck it with the help of another research assistant. Well, until next week, keep spreading the suck. Hate others based on the quality of their character rather than the color of their skin. And keep on sucking. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wick donald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wick donald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. 